Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1. There we go. That's better. My microphone was falling off. All right. Psalm chapter 1 is where we're going to be. I'll give you a second to get there. Um, but while you're doing that, uh, when I was in college, I chose to be an English minor. Now, my major eventually was elementary education, but my minor pretty much the whole time was English. And I chose to be an English minor because I loved to read. But what I found was that the quickest way to hate reading is to become an English minor. All right, all the books that I thought I was going to read and we're going to have great discussions, I'm going to learn new authors and all this stuff, it didn't happen. I wrote a lot, I wrote a whole lot, but the reading didn't happen. But one of the things that I did pick up on through this was that there's an idea of two paths that seem to flow through a lot of writing. Um, there's always two paths that an individual can follow. If you think of Star Wars, you've got, the, you've got the good side and you've got the dark side. All right, One path always leads to good and the other path always leads to evil. And this motif, this idea is found all over the place. And probably one of the most familiar, even for non-English uh, majors or minors, you've probably all heard the poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. All right? and, the, and the last few lines of that poem say this. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now there's also, there's a very famous novel called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And if you're not familiar with that book, uh, it's the story of a man named Christian who's on a journey to the celestial city, and, and it describes all of the situations that he finds himself in, in the midst of this journey. And, and this novel, it was an allegory. It was written to describe what a Christian's life might be like. Now, as they travel, as they go from the city of destruction where he started to the celestial city, Christian and his companions are often given the choice between two different paths. The king's path is the road that they're supposed to travel on, but the other path, it always looks so much more enticing. It's wider, it's got rivers running beside it, it's enticing. That's the path that they want to be on. Here's a spoiler alert though. Anytime that Christian leaves the king's path, bad things always happen. Now the idea of two paths, it can, it's also found in the Bible as well. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells the story of the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. And uh, if you grew up in church like I did, you probably sang that song in junior church. The wise man built his house upon... All right, that's all I'm going to sing for you. Um, right, but we have this idea of, of two paths. The two paths of life are the thing that we're going to look at today as we work through Psalm chapter 1. Uh, so what we're going to see is we're going to see the path of the righteous man and the path of the wicked. So if you have your Bible there, uh, Psalm chapter 1, let's read. It says, beginning in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its life it, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the first point that I want us to see is the path of the righteous. And Psalm chapter 1, as we read through it, it gives us a description of the two types of people and the two paths that they're going to find themselves on. And the Bible is very clear on this point. There are only two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. And interestingly enough, as we read through Psalm 1, we see that the path of the righteous person, it's described by what he doesn't do rather than what he does do. The righteous man is held in contrast to the wicked one. Just like when you're buying a diamond, they'll often put it on a black cloth so you can see um, the contrast between it. The psalmist is point, putting out a pretty clear comparison between these two types of people. So we're going to look at three things for the righteous. Uh, the first is the character of the righteous. And what is the first word that begins this psalm? It's the word blessed. Other translations of the scripture, they use the word happy. And not just happy like I just got a present, I'm happy, or I got extra chicken nuggets in my meal, happy. The, the word happy here is, is the idea of bliss. It's happiness in its deepest form. So why is this man happy? Is it because he has health, wealth, and eternal sunshine? Not at all. The person being described here is happy because of his character, because of who he is. He is happy because he is delighted by the things of God. And what we see is the righteous person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He's avoiding the sinfulness of the world around him. So let's ask this question. Why is he on the path of the righteous? Why is he avoiding the sin around him? It's because he delights in the things of God. You and I, we're all drawn to the things that we delight in. All right? There are some things that we can do once, and we're perfectly fine if we never do them again. I, I, I've been to Las Vegas, right? I, I've been to the city of Las Vegas. It was fun. I had a good time. But if I never go to Las Vegas again, I'll be okay, right? I'm not going to be upset that I never got back to Las Vegas. But when I met Tina, my, Tina's my wife, for those of you who don't know. When I met Tina, I wasn't content to say hello and be done with it. Suddenly, I wanted to be around Tina, right? She and I attended different churches. I went to a different church, and my parents, Tina went to my parents' church. But for some reason, I was suddenly attending my parents' church. Like, I, 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 I would call my friends and say, hey, I'm not going to make the church this morning. And I would be at my parents' church. Why? Because I was finding delight in Tina. I spent many hours after 9 p.m. because when Tina and I met, this was before they had unlimited cell phone, cell phone minutes. So you had to wait until 9 o'clock to be able to use your cell phone. Um, I spent hours into the night talking to her. Why? Because I was delighted in Tina. I was delighted in her, so I was drawn to her. And so that's going to bring us to the delight of the righteous. That's uh, our second point here. Now, as we've already seen, Psalm 1 verse 2 tells us the delight of the righteous is in the law of the Lord. Now, this is not just referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Instead, it's referring to all of God's revealed word. So the righteous person loves all of God's revealed word. 
The righteous will find joy in the scriptures. Every word of the scripture is precious to him. Can the same be said for us? Do we love the word of God and find delight in it? Are you able to say, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb? Now, if you can't say this, what is keeping that from being true? Could it be that our delight is in other things? We will only love God's word when we are completely consumed by it. Now, there's, there was a reason that the righteous man was able to stay on this path. It wasn't because he was a good guy. It wasn't because he was trying really hard to stay on the path. It was because he meditates on the law day and night. Now, sadly, the word meditate, it's been co-opted by mysticism and other unbiblical philosophies. We hear the word meditate and immediately we get these ideas of sitting with our legs crossed, our fingers out like this, and we're trying to empty our minds and we're humming to ourselves. That's the idea that we, we get of meditation. But this is the exact opposite of what biblical meditation is. Biblical meditation means to have our minds set on the scriptures. Our thoughts are consumed by them. When we meditate on the scripture, we consider, we ponder, dwell, and remember. Our affections are set on things above. Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, he who delights in God's law is often thinking about it. What a man delights in, his thoughts are running upon. If there is any delight in the things of God, the mind will be musing upon them. Now, the righteous man is able to avoid the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, and the seed of scoffers because his mind is intimately acquainted with the scripture. Psalm 119 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Church, are we guarding our ways according to the scripture? Take some time, it'll take a little while, but take some time and read through Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it is all about the ways that meditating on God's law will protect and bless you. If you want to be happy, study that chapter. And that brings us to the third point uh, under this, the blessing of the righteous. There is a blessing and an expectation for the future of the righteous man. The psalmist, in verse 3, he uses a simile to describe the blessing of this man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, growing up, I grew up in Sterling, Virginia. Growing up, my house had a lake behind it. And that sounds really bougie, right? It sounds like, ooh, they grew up on a lake. Look at that. It it was more of a pond. It kind of smelled bad, but... um, They called it Willow Lake, so we refer to it as a lake. Now, planted beside Willow Lake, no surprise, were willow trees, right? It makes sense, Willow Lake, willow trees. And these trees were massive. They were literally the biggest trees I remember seeing. Uh, I never actually measured one, but I would imagine that the circumference was probably somewhere between 20 and 30 feet around. I mean, they were big trees. And they were incredibly tall. 
Now, what, what was it that made these trees grow so well? Well, it was because they had a constant source of water. Their roots went right into the lake, which is a water is an essential element for the growth of the trees. And this, the psalmist tells us two things in this chapter, or in, in this analogy. First, the tree yields fruit, and second, the leaf does not wither. Matthew Henry wrote that the meditation on Scripture is what makes the man like the tree. He said, the more we converse with the word of God, the better furnished we are for every good word and work. And the imagery of, of the tree is an assurance to, to the righteous of God's blessing. A person can know that he is a child of God and sealed with the Holy Spirit if and only if he's producing fruit. There will be blessings in his life as well. Now, just to be clear, just to make sure, this blessing doesn't necessarily mean that the righteous will be blessed with material goods. Right? There, are, there are some pastors who tell you, you want to know if you have God's blessing? Look at the car you drive. Look how much money is in your bank. That's not what the psalmist is referring to here. The psalmist, he's not espousing a prosperity gospel. Instead, this prospering has to do with the gift of wisdom that God bestows on the godly. The godly live with the hope of God's blessing, if not in this lifetime, then in the one to come. Now skipping down to verse 6, we see the ultimate blessing that's given to the righteous man. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. God knows his final destination, and that is to be with him in eternity. Rest in that for just a second. Think on that. That is our ultimate blessing. All of eternity with God himself. But even before that, God knows the way of the righteous because he has called him to that way. The righteous were chosen by God before the foundations of the world. And their boundaries and habitations are determined by the Lord. What an incredible thought this is. To know that the ways of the righteous are known and determined by God. There is great comfort in that. Rest in that for a fact. Rest in this fact. Nothing that happens to a child of God is out of his control or out of his reach. Why? Because he has ordained it to happen. He has chosen you to walk that path. The good and the bad that we experience are all by God's design for our good and for his glory. What a beautiful thought that is. Now, of course, all of this is contrasted with the wicked man. While the wicked man isn't specifically named in, Psalm, uh, in verses 1 and 2, we can definitely identify the path that he's on. So that's going to bring us to our second main point, the path of the wicked man. And the contrast to the righteous man is the wicked man. If you look back in verse 1, we see that the psalmist also describes the character of that wicked man. Where the righteous man avoids the areas that are described, the wicked man follows this path. The wicked individual is on it. What we just see described here is a descent into sinfulness. It's not always a rapid descent, but one that takes place gradually. Charles Spurgeon described it as being unconcerned about religion, 
He is neither zealous for his own salvation nor for that of others. And he counsels and advises those with whom he converses to adopt his plan and not trouble themselves about praying, reading, repentance, etc., etc. There is no need for such things. Live an honest life. Make no fuss about religion. And you will fare well enough at last. The path of the wicked becomes increasingly more extreme. Where the, where the one on the path of the wicked began by listening to the counsel of, of the wicked, he will eventually end up sitting down with the scoffers, those who openly mock the things of God. And just a quick survey of the world around us we will show that many people, including some of our loved ones, have gone down this path. And isn't it amazing that this path of wickedness was written about thousands of years ago and it's still accurate today? Now let's look, we're going to look, the second thing is I want to look at the curse of the wicked. In Psalm 1 verse 3, the righteous are described as a tree planted by streams of water and that they, all that they will do will prosper. But this is not true of the wicked individual. Instead of being useful and valuable like trees, the wicked are like chaff. Now most of us, we're probably not familiar with what chaff is, but it's basically garbage. It's basically the waste product of something. When a farmer would gather in his wheat crop, when he would uh, go out into the fields and, and do the harvest and bring the crop in, he needed to get the kernels of wheat off of the plant. And so what he would do is, is he would lay out the wheat on what's called the threshing floor, and then the workers would come through and they would beat the wheat with sticks so as to, to crack open the kernels. Uh, and then what they would do is they would, they would gather up those kernels and they would toss them up into the air. And what would happen is the wind would blow through and all of the chaff would just blow away. That's what they, they wanted to get rid of it. And then the heavier kernels would fall to the ground so they could be, be gathered up. The chaff was useless. It, it, was, it was a nuisance. Uh, I was thinking on this, the closest comparison that I can think of is a popcorn husk. You know when you're eating popcorn and those little pieces get stuck between your teeth and then you have to floss? It, it, it's basically garbage. It's the worst. And the sad reality is that the wicked have no use. Regardless of what they think of themselves, they have no value. When contrasted with the tree, the chaff is completely lifeless. The farmers were content to be rid of the chaff as quickly as possible. And this is true of the wicked. The psalmist states that they will ultimately be driven away. Which brings us to the end of the wicked. So what is the end of the wicked? Well, verse 5 tells us the ultimate outcome of the wicked will be utter devastation. We see in this verse the, word, the familiar word, therefore. And what do we do when we see the word therefore? We ask what it's there for. In this case, we see the consequences of the, for the wicked turning themselves into chaff. Because through his actions, the wicked individual will not stand in the judgment of God. This can be in the present through adversity or in the future when he stands before God on the day of the Lord. Far too many people, when confronted with difficult times, and we've seen some difficult times lately, turn even further from God instead of turning to him. Instead of taking refuge in the Lord, they reject him even more. 
the wicked individual will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous, meaning they will be cut off from God's people and ultimately from God himself. Revelation 20 gives a description of this final judgment. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Because we see at the end of verse 6 here in Psalm 1, the way of the wicked will perish, for the wages of sin is death. Now, all, now with all of this, it, it, it would be pretty easy for us to say, well, glad I'm not that wicked individual, right? We, we can puff up our chest and we put a little strut in our walk. I'm not the wicked individual. I'm not on that path. Too often, though, we hear passages of Scripture like Psalm 1, and we get into this mindset of do this, don't do that, do this, do, don't do that, and we think everything is going to be good. As long as we're doing this and not that, we're just fine. We see Psalm 1 as a game plan for prosperity. All I have to do is ignore the counsel of the wicked, stay out of the way of sinners, and avoid sitting down with scoffers. I can do that. I should be good to go, right? Well, the bad news is, is that outside of Christ, we would all be on the path of the wicked. Because the truth is, no one is righteous on our own. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we want to think that we are good on our own. But the scripture has an answer for that as well. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here's the truth of the matter. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. A few weeks back in, in the sermon on Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, Jeremy made this statement. There are two types of people those who love God with their whole selves and those who don't. In Matthew 22, Jesus is questioned and he's asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. At any point that you love something more, you've broken that law. And James 2 verse 10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. If you at any point fail to keep this law, you're guilty. And so therefore, according to the scripture, that makes you wicked. Now, I could Empire Strikes Back this sermon and just leave it right there. Um, but there is good news as well. You and I, we are wicked before God. We've broken his law and made ourselves like chaff. Thankfully, though, there is one who is righteous. And what I want us to look at now is who is this righteous one? So our third point is the identity of the righteous man. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is a law that requires the king to write out by hand his own copy of God's law. He was to have it approved by the priest, and then he was to read it every single day of his life. Deuteronomy 17, 18, 19 says, When he sits down on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy, in a, in a book, a copy of this law, 
approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Now, why was he supposed to do this? Because the king was to meditate on the law of God. Now, it sounds like the king should have been the man that was described in Psalm chapter 1, right? And yet every single leader, every single person that was in charge of God's people, beginning with Moses, continuing with Joshua, then on to Saul, who was the first king, to David, and on down the list, every single king failed to live up to the standard described in Psalm chapter 1. So if it wasn't a leader, if it wasn't a leader like Moses, if it wasn't a king like David, who is this righteous man? Well, the only one, the only one who was capable of living out Psalm chapter 1 is Jesus Christ. By the time Jesus had begun his public ministry in Israel, there were religious leaders who were no doubt reading Psalm chapter 1 and going, what's talking about me, right? I'm that righteous one. They considered themselves to be the righteous one. But what was even worse than their pride was their reaction when Jesus came and warned them that they were, in fact, not in the way of the righteous, but in the way of the wicked. Their response to that, they wanted to kill him. They began to seek and look for ways to put Jesus on the cross. Well, Jesus came to earth to save sinners. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus is the only truly righteous man to ever live. Hebrews chapter 10, 7 tells us that he delighted in the law in a way that no other human could. He prayed day and night, and he was so intimately familiar with the scriptures that even in the most extreme events of his life, such as the temptation in the wilderness and when he was dying on the cross, he was quoting scripture. Jesus is the tree that is planted by the streams of water. All that he did prospered. His life, death, and resurrection did exactly what they were intended to do, and that was to bring salvation to those who could not keep the requirements of Psalm 1. Now, a point of application needs to be made, needs to be drawn out here. Knowing that it is only through Jesus that we are on the path of the righteous, what should those of us who are in Christ, what should our response be? Our response should be praise and obedience. We can't fall back into apathy and neglect. We do this to our detriment. In our own strength, we're not able to move from one path to the other. But since we are in Christ, we should strive to keep the demands found in Psalm chapter 1. Love the scriptures. Learn to meditate on them. And if you're not sure what that means, talk with me, talk with one of the elders. We'd be happy to get some resources to you to help you with that. Now, a second use for this passage should be to break our hearts for those still on the path of the wicked. Instead of being content that you've been set on the correct path, strive to point others to Jesus. Pray for the unbelievers in your circles of influence. 
Plead with them like Charles Spurgeon did when he wrote, I exhort you sinners, lay hold on Christ. Touch the hem of his garment now. Behold, he hangs before you on the cross. As Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so is Jesus lifted up. Look, I beseech you, look and live. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. As though God did beseech you by me, I pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. If you're here today and you are in Christ, you are the righteous man described in Psalm chapter 1. Not because of anything that you've done or by any merit, but by the fact that you are in Christ. It's because of Christ's mercy that you're saved. If you are in Christ, you, you will stand in the judgment because your sins have been covered by the, by the blood of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you will be found in the congregation of the righteous. You were chosen by God for adoption as his child. Now, if you're here this morning or you're watching via the live stream and you're not in Christ, there is still hope. Turn to Christ as your only hope in life and in death. Confess your sins and trust him. Jesus is the righteous one and he can take you from the path of the wicked and set your feet on the path of the righteous. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for the truths found in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, we thank you that there are two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And we thank you that because of Christ, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, those of us who were running uh, as fast as we could down the path of the wicked can now be set on the path of the righteous. And Father, I pray that we would not become we not become apathetic to that, that we would not take that for granted, uh, but that we would continually trust Christ, knowing that it is through him that we can be on that path. Not because of anything that we've done, but all through Christ. And Father, I pray that uh, the truths of these words would penetrate our hearts, uh, that we would, we would continually look to Christ as our only hope in life and death. And that if there are those who are hearing, hearing this, this message, the, these words from the, the scripture, who have not yet done that, that today would be the day that they would look to Christ, that they would reach out and that they would be saved. Father, we thank you that we can gather like this. We thank you for your word and the truths in it. Make us more like your son because we were here today. We ask this in your beautiful name.